Good morning, Tapestry. It is good to be with you uh, on yet another Sunday morning um, in what is only a couple of weeks before we return to uh, meeting in person here at the YMCA. We're gonna be out in the field. Uh, if you haven't seen it on Facebook or gotten an email, look that up. Um, we are back on the 21st. And so we only have a couple more weeks of this virtual church, but here we go. We're doing it. We are continuing on in our series uh, this year of Sunday School at Tapestry, and we're telling some stories, right? Some of these stories that you may have heard um, growing up and forgotten about or not really gotten much out of them or they don't mean much to you anymore. We're, we're gonna try and give some new light to them. Some of them are stories you may not have heard before. This may be one of those today. We're gonna be telling a story about this guy. I'm gonna keep this guy over here because I want you to see him, but he's not in the story yet. But uh, this is David. It's a young David. And I know what you're thinking. I know the stories of David. We're not telling those stories today. Maybe we'll get to them, not today. So David, he was a young guy and uh, he came on the scene of one of the famous stories you've heard when he killed the giant Goliath that all of the army of Israel was entirely afraid of. He showed up with a slingshot took him down. When that happened, he became really popular in Israel, which was good for him. Not so good for this guy. This is King Saul. King Saul was an insecure king. And when David, when David got popular, it really bothered Saul. So Saul thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, bring him into my family so that I can keep control of him. And so he offered one of his daughters up to be married to David. And David said, no, 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 no. I don't deserve to be the king's son-in-law. And he denied him. Well, this made Saul even more insecure and upset and angry. Well, eventually, David did end up falling in love with one of Saul's daughters. And they kind of started a little bit of a thing. And, and she had a brother. And his name was Jonathan. And David and Jonathan ended up becoming best friends. So you got David's best friends with Saul's son. David's in love with one of Saul's daughters. Saul just keeps getting crazier and crazier and more and more insecure. So there would be times he would threaten David and David would hide out for a little while, lay low till things got better. And every time Saul would get to a level where he decided he was gonna kill David, both of his children who were involved with David would warn him and say, hey, David, Dad's really mad. You need to hang low for a while. And so David would. Well, one night at dinner, one night at dinner, Saul finally has had enough of David. And he stands up and he starts making a scene. And he yells at his son, Jonathan. He yells and he's like, like, I know you're in cahoots with that David. I know you're on his side. Don't you know you're never gonna become king and have a kingdom until you're not with that guy anymore. And he orders the soldiers around him to find David and to kill him. So the daughter and the son of Saul, they go and they warn David as was their custom to do. So David takes off. He flees. And he eventually goes to a place that should be a place of safety. He goes and he talks to the high priest and this was not in the same area that Saul was. The, 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 the temple, which was a tent at that point, was in a different place. And he goes to the high priest who knew David. And he says to the high priest, high priest, 
I'm on a mission from the king. Lie. Because the priest wondered, David, what are you doing here? Why are you by yourself? Because David, through all of his popularity, had become a, 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 a um, had run, was running the major part of the military. And so David didn't go anywhere without many, many soldiers with him. The priest says, David, why are you here alone? David says, well, the king sent me on a secret mission. Well, David, where are all your guys if you're on this mission from the king? Oh, well, I told them I was gonna meet them somewhere. Where? Somewhere. So the, uh, the priest was a little suspicious. And then David says to him, hey, 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 do you got anything to eat? That's kind of, takes the priest by surprise. Well, what do you mean to eat? Well, I was in such a hurry. The mission was so important that I didn't, I don't have food with me. And then he asked an even weirder question. He said, do you have a sword or spear? And the priest is thinking, you're on a special mission from the king. You don't have your guys. You don't have anything to eat. Now you're asking me for a weapon? And so the priest responds to him. The priest says, well, there is a sword, but it is the sword of Goliath. It's the sword of the giant that David killed in the valley that day that turned him into the David that everybody knows. And so David said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring me that sword. So the priest brings him the sword. And you may be thinking, well, that's a weird looking sword. I don't think that Goliath's sword had all of that artwork on it, to which I say, prove to me that it didn't. <laughs> so David takes this sword that he had given the temple in the first place and he runs because he was afraid of Saul. Now, there's a narrative that, that is as old as time itself. And, and that narrative is, is that we have moments. We have moments when things are not going our way, right? When things, when things seem to be unfair, life is not going the way we want it to go. You may realize in these moments that your plans are no match for reality. Perhaps there's people around you who have failed you or are doing wrong by you. It's clear maybe that you'll never fulfill dreams that you once had, right? And maybe, maybe even at the worst of it, it seems like God has abandoned you. And all you can do in those moments is just kind of sit and realize that much of what you're experiencing is a result of something that you did. Or, or maybe to be more accurate, for some of you, maybe a result of something you didn't do. And, and none of us are immune to this. We all have these moments, but luckily we're not the first ones to have these moments. And we're gonna take a, a couple of weeks here and we're gonna look at David as he has some of these moments in his life, right? And what we're gonna discover is that David's foundation for making it through these moments was that his hope and his trust were in God. In fact, in the book of Psalms, David writes this. Here's what he says. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. 
Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are my God, my savior, and my hope is in you all day long. And that sounds great. And it sounds really simple. But as a king, uh, there was not a shortage of places for David to put his trust and his hope. He had people for him that worked for him. He had money. Like he had everything. There was a lot of places he could put faith and hope. Right? And in those moments when it seems as if the world's kind of turned against you, um, there's power and relief to be found in saying, I, I put my faith and hope and trust in the Lord. Now, here's the problem when we find ourselves in these moments where things are not going our way, right? Where things can't be going more wrong and we're left questioning ourselves. Um, there's a tendency for us to feel three things. Um, anger, uh, for us to feel angry, for us to feel isolated and for us to feel afraid. Right? And the ways of God, the way that God wants us to do things and behave and approach things and prioritize things seem the most unappealing and, and irrelevant when we're angry, isolated, and afraid. Right? These three conditions have the potential to undermine the faith of even the most devout Christians among us. These are, these are three um, conditions that can cause us to blast through every moral and ethical boundary that we have set up for ourselves. And they can drive us to do things that, that we'll look back on with shame and regret. And we'll wonder what in the world were we thinking? And the reason is this, is because when we feel ourselves being overwhelmed with the emotion of the things we're dealing with, um, we find ourselves compelled to do something. There's something in us that, that, that is compelled to act, right? There's almost a sense of panic. I've got to do something to relieve this tension that I'm feeling in my life. And as a result, just because we feel we need to do something, we end up doing things that make our lives more complicated and things get worse, not better. And when that happens, we end up angrier and lonelier and more scared. Now, David had two colossal failures in his life, right? One he's very famous for that took place while he was king and he was in his 50s. But the one we're looking at today, this takes place when he was in his 20s, right? Probably around 22. And this isn't, this isn't his famous failure, um, but it's certainly a dramatic one. Right, because following the defeat of Goliath, David becomes probably next to the king, the most famous person in all of Israel. And the king realizes that David suddenly has a whole lot of power. But now, but now to go along with that power, he's gaining influence and he's gaining the, the goodwill of the people of Israel. So Saul becomes extremely insecure, comes up with the plan to take care of it, right? And so, as I said, he, he got, he wanted to get David into his family and so offered a daughter and David says, no, 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 no. I can't be the son-in-law's king. And so as time, the king's son-in-law, as time goes by, Saul keeps looking for more and more ways to control David and, and David ends up falling in love with the other daughter and becoming friends with 
Jonathan. And when that happens, Saul begins to think maybe getting David into the family was a bad idea. Right? Because now he's so influential and him being in my family seems like I'm with him and that's not going well. So about seven years go by. David's been in and out of the favor of Saul. And in that time, there would be moments where Saul wanted David gone and would kill him and it just never actually happened. And finally, the frustration builds for Saul and builds and builds and builds. And during the tumultuous times, David would skip dinner and that would just make Saul even more and more mad. And finally, at one of the dinners, Saul explodes. Here's the biblical account of this story. 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, his own son. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now those are strong words. <laughs> I don't know what Jonathan's mother did to deserve that from Saul. I hope she wasn't sitting there to hear those words. <laughs> but he says, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, who was David's father? In other words, he says to his son, I'm tired of pretending. Right? I know that everybody sitting around this table has sided with this shepherd boy over me, the king. He says, I know that you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. I don't know why he couldn't leave Jonathan's mother out of this. And then he gets to the real issue. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Because See, Saul saw Jonathan as the next king. And he saw Jonathan as the way to which his own legacy would live. And he saw David as a threat to that. And he says this, now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Well, Jonathan goes, finds David, says, you've got to leave. My father's after your head. David's 22 years old, and suddenly he's afraid for his life. He's alone. He's got no one. He re he's rejected by the man that he risked his life for on a regular basis. He, he had done nothing wrong. And he finds himself now running. And he's angry and he feels abandoned and he's afraid of what's going on. And I would love, love, love to say, David handled this situation perfectly. Here's what you should do in that moment, because this is what David did in that moment. But I can't. And this is important. Because in that moment, David panicked. And when he panicked, he lost sight of the fact that God was with him. He lost sight of the, of the fact of all of the things that God had done for him already in his past. Right? And as we read these stories in the Bible and we know how they all turn out, um, it, it's easy for us to watch somebody doing something and be thinking like, why would you do that? Why would you make that decision? Why, why would you do that? Um, why would you make that choice? Why would you abandon your ethics? Why would you abandon your morals? Why? But I can't help but wonder if there aren't people watching some of us in our difficult moments and the choices that we're making and the things we're doing and the morals that we're abandoning and saying the exact same thing about us, why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. And let's, let's be honest. Many of you can look back on those situations in your life and wonder the same thing about decisions that 
you made when you were feeling angry or abandoned or afraid? Why did I make those decisions? And the answer is, is because when we're feeling those things, our natural inclination is to panic. And that's exactly what David did. Verse one of chapter 21. David went to Nob, to uh, Ahimelech, the priest. And at this time in history, Israel did not own the region around the city of Jerusalem. So there wasn't really a capital city of Israel. So the epicenter of Jewish worship was wherever, um, wherever the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant was. Right? And the tabernacle would be moved around to whatever the safest city was because um, they didn't want it being attacked and destroyed and pillaged. Right? And so at this time, the tabernacle was in a city named Nob and the high priest was there as well. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And the reason he asks is because every time David shows up, you could hear him coming from miles away because he would have a thousand warriors with him. Ahimelech had never seen him alone. And all of a sudden, here he is by himself looking a bit uh, disheveled, right? And it causes uh, Ahimelech's spidey senses to start tingling. Like he can feel that something is wrong. And then David does an amazing thing. He stands there. And he lies to the face of the high priest. Now, David loved God's laws. And lying, lying is one of the big 10. Like that is a big deal. In fact, at that very moment, when David was standing there having this conversation, he could have walked right through a few curtains and been standing at the Ark of the Covenant which was believed to hold the tablets that had the 10 commandments etched into them, right? But standing that close to the tablets with the law, he chose to break that law and he lied. Why? Because of that overwhelming sense of panic you get when you feel abandoned, angry, and afraid. And in those moments, the ways of God seem irrelevant. Here's what he said. David answered Ahimelech, the priest. He said, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. <laughs> now, as far as lies go, that was pretty lame, right? I'm on a secret mission and I'm meeting my guys at a certain place. What place is that, David? A certain. <laughs> like, that's not great. But he lied because he thought if he told the truth that Ahimelech would not help him. And that lie that he told, it cost not only David, but ultimately it was going to cost Ahimelech and his entire family their lives. Story continues, verse three. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. And Ahimelech is thinking, this is just weird. Right, you're by yourself and you're hungry. So the priest offers the only thing that he has with him at the moment. And that is bread that has been consecrated in the temple. But to eat that bread, there were conditions that had to be met. And so what does David do? He lies again. 
And he says that he met the conditions even though he didn't. So here's David starting to layer his lies to the high priest within walking distance of the, uh, of the Ten Commandment tablets and the Ark of the Covenant. He's layering his lies, which begs the question, what happened to that verse that we read at the top of this that said, Lord, I put my trust in you. My hope is in you all day long. What, what happened to that version of David? Where'd he go? And then the story gets so intense. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? And, and this is where Ahimelech really catches a clue, right? You're the most famous warrior in the nation, David. And you show up by yourself. You look like you haven't slept in days. You have no food and you aren't even carrying a weapon. David says, I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. Another lie. Another lie. Now, this is when something incredible happens. David is virtually transported back in time to the very event that God used to catapult him into fame with the Israelite people in the first place. And this is the wake up moment, the, oh my goodness, what am I doing moment. This is when David's eyes should have been opened to what he was doing. Here's the, here's the priest's reply to David's request for the weapon. The, the priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Allah is here. Now, can you imagine standing there lying to the chief priests and he responds, the sword you used to kill the giant is here. That day that you became the David that we all know and love and admire and follow. And the reason that the chief priests had it at the tabernacle is because David, after he had defeated Goliath, took that sword and he gave it to the priest at the tabernacle uh, and dedicated that sword and that action to God. It was David's way of saying, God, I know what you did here. I know that you delivered me. It was not of my own doing. So much significance tied to this sword. Now, can you imagine what went through David's head as he was taken back to that day when he entered that valley with thousands of warriors on both sides? What happened to that, that, that clear-eyed boy who was full of confidence in God? Right, the one who stared down the giant and killed him. What, what happened to that boy who ran towards danger because he knew God was with him, not away from it because he was scared and afraid? Right? Where is that faith in God? And the answer is fear and anger and loneliness. Right? Those, those three things, those three giants have the ability to cause us to forget what God has done for us in our past. And David is given, handed a physical, literal reminder of what God did for him in his past. And you know what makes this even crazier? He missed it. He missed it. Right? The sword is here, the, the priest said. It, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. 
And this would be a decision that David would come to regret and it would be a permanent part of the story of his life. David said, there is none like it, give it to me. He lies and then he runs from crazy King Saul with a sword that was last wielded by a giant warrior who was defeated by a 15 year old boy. He should have seen it, but he didn't. And the outcome was disastrous. But this is where our story intersects with the story of David. When we need God the most is often the very moments in which we are least apt to lean in his direction. We are tempted to run away from God in those moments when we need him the most, not towards God. We opt for things that never worked before, that didn't get us where we are, right? Things that often lead to regret. We forget what God has done for us in our past. And we see this so easily in other people, right? Bad decisions being made on isolation and anger and fear. And you think, ah, that's just gonna make it more complicated. That's gonna create regret. That's gonna make things worse. That's not gonna help. But it is so difficult to see it in the mirror when we are making these same types of decisions based on these same types of emotions, right? And here's why, because we convince ourselves, my situation is different. My situation is different. We think if God was with me, these things wouldn't be happening to me. So God must not be with me. But here's one of the things that I've learned over the years is that it is so easy to trust God when we have nothing really to trust him with and nothing to trust him for, right? When you have nothing to lose, trust is easy. But the more you gain and the more you have to lose, the more and more difficult it becomes to trust in God, right? Because how difficult is it? If you have nothing to lose, how difficult is it to turn on a computer and watch church and pray for your friends when everything's going well? How difficult is that? But it's harder to trust God when you have things of value that are beginning to slip away. So David takes Goliath's sword. And it's easy to be critical of David, but we all make stupid decisions in these moments. And unfortunately, David's stupid decisions in this story aren't done. Because what he does next, (laughs) guess where he goes with that sword? He goes to the land of the Philistines with the Philistine giant sword who he killed, right? Gets worse. He doesn't just go to the land of the Philistines. He goes, he goes to the town of Gath, which is where Goliath was from, right? I mean, these are not rational decisions that he is making. These are the decisions of a scared, terrified person. But he goes to the leader of the Philistines and he says, hey, I want to join your army and fight against my own people. 
Well, the Philistines aren't buying it. They think it's some kind of trick, right? What's he doing now? Are you kidding me? You're the one who killed our giant. So they say, no, 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 no. We know who you are. Don't lie to us. You're carrying Goliath's sword right now. You're carrying it right now. So now David's really afraid because now not only is he running and alone and has lied to the priest within walking distance of the law of God, but now he's surrounded by his enemies, holding a reminder of what he did to them. So what's he going to do? Here's what he does. He pretends like he's insane. He starts slobbering all over himself, scratching the walls with his nails, babbling incoherent gibberish, right? So the Philistine leader just has him taken out to the edge of town and thrown out. And at 22 years old, David, who had done amazing things in his past with God, with him, who at the point that he fled, at the time that he fled, was probably the most famous, most popular, well-liked, powerful, influential person in the entire nation of Israel, is now a 22-year-old who goes off by himself to live in a cave, isolated, angry, and afraid. Then finally, finally, he comes to his senses. So he goes back to his country, finds another prophet, and he basically says, I've really messed up, right? I want to know what God's will is for me. Will you give me the counsel of God? Which is a good step, but the problem is the damage has been done. The damage has been done. Word had gotten to Saul that David had gone and talked to Ahimelech and that Ahimelech had fed him and given him the sword. So Saul brings the chief priest to him along with his family and he has him killed. He has him killed and it doesn't stop there. Saul had all of the other priests killed as well, about 85 in total killed. But it doesn't stop there. He had everyone in the town of Nob killed. Everyone, a word reaches David as to what happened and as you can expect, he, he's broken. He's broken. He knows he's responsible for the death of an entire village because of poor decisions he made. Because he forgot that God was with him and gave in to the emotions of feeling abandoned, angry, and afraid. Sometimes taking matters into your own hands feels like what you should do. And sometimes doing something feels good, but it doesn't always turn out good. Isolation, anger, and fear will push us to do things we normally would not do. Things that we would advise other people against in a heartbeat. So here are a few questions for you to consider this morning. What is your isolation, anger, or fear causing you to consider that maybe you've never considered before? Perhaps it's something relationally, financially, some risk that you're considered taking. 
Maybe some habit that you've rid yourself of. Have you ever actually seen that work out for anyone? Perhaps this question for you. Who is your isolation, anger, or fear causing you to consider that you shouldn't consider? You know, you may have never called them back, but you're thinking about calling them now. They made it obvious they're interested, but you've ignored it. But now because of what's happening around you, suddenly now they're a live option again. And here's the wake up call question. Who besides you do these things that you're considering doing, who do they put at risk? I'll tell you the answer. The answer is the people closest to you. The people you love the most, the people who love you the most. Some of you have experienced this in your life, other people's decisions having dramatically negative impacts on you and putting you at risk. So consider whose future hangs in the balance of your decision to give in to the impulses that are created in you as you feel isolated, angry, or afraid. One, one last question. What advice would you give someone considering the things that you may be considering if it weren't you? That is, what would you tell somebody else who is going through what you are experiencing? Like the, because these situations are not unique. They feel unique to us, but they're not. These are well-worn paths. That's why it's easy for us to look at other people and it be so clear as to what they're doing, exactly where it's gonna lead. Because it's not that unique. Imagine grown-up King David would tell us after he had some time and distance from his mistakes, I imagine he would tell us, the Lord is our refuge. Not anything else or anyone are we able to turn to. Because young David, he took refuge in his ability to control outcomes. And he forgot what God had done in his past. And the result was a disaster. It was a disaster. So when you find yourself in one of these moments, when you find yourself isolated, angry, or afraid, in that moment, when the ways of God seem completely irrelevant and unrealistic, are you gonna to turn towards God or away from God? Because let me tell you, one way leads to refuge. The other leads to you being responsible for the outcome. And you don't have much control over the outcome. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for anyone who is watching this or listening to this, that they are in a moment in time, in life, with things that have gone on in the past year up to now. Father, that they're feeling that, that, that isolation, that, that anger of how things are going, that fear of what the future holds and what's coming for them. And perhaps they are considering doing some things that they know are not things they should be doing. God, I pray for anybody in that situation, Lord, that, that you remind them of what you have done for them in their past 
and that you are with them. Father, give them wisdom to see where the decisions that they would make out of the pressure of those emotions will lead to things that they do not want in their life. And give them the courage to, even though it's difficult and they may not see how it works out, to continue to do the things that you would have them to do. Lord, I thank you for stories such as this that remind us that even those who have experienced you in supernatural ways are tempted to give in to these negative emotions in these difficult times. Lord, let us learn from this. And when times are tough, not to run away from you, but to turn towards you. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace and that every time we turn toward you, you open your arms and welcome us in. Thank you for all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. I hope you have a wonderful week. We're looking forward to being together again virtually next week.